Well, as, as Peter said, there are uh, prayer cards that you can stick on your refrigerator, and they're out by the book nook. And uh, for those of you who are really fast, there is a little squishy ball from the IMB. And Allison, this one is yours. <laughs> Whoops. By the way, thank you for reading this morning. You guys did a great job. Um, I do want to just let you know, uh, Peter um, talked about sending, and I want to uh, just talk about something very briefly that we've been mentioning in the midweek, and that is the Cross Conference. This is a conference designed for young adults. They advertise 18 to 25-year-olds, uh, but this is a conference that's happening the first week in January, and uh, we as a church have purchased five tickets. Two of them are taken. And so there, that means there's three more. Five minus two equals three. And so uh, for those of you who would consider yourselves young adults, not necessarily in that category of 18 to 25 like they would say, um, let me know. We would love for you to be a part of this. Or parents, if you've got some young adults uh, in your house that um, might be open to looking at this, there are going to be speakers like David Platt, uh, John Piper, um, there'll be some other missionaries. There'll be uh, a, a concert. And essentially, all you have to do is pay for your ticket. And we're going to get you there. We're going to put, put you up in a hotel. And we're going to provide for your meals. Um, so it's, at this point, about $150. Uh, so I want to just encourage you, uh, if you consider yourself a young adult, if you've got a young adult in your family, maybe this would be a good bonus Christmas gift. But this is all about missions. This is an opportunity for us as a church to help equip the next generation to go. Um, with that being said, let me pray for us as we open the word of the Lord together. Uh, Father, we do thank you so much for this time. Lord, thank you for Peter and Tina for the call that you've placed on their lives, for the, their obedience to you and your faithfulness to them. Father, I do pray that as they head out on January 8th, that you would grant them a great deal of peace trusting and knowing that you are calling them into this work. God, I pray that you would grant them unity with the other team members there. Grant them the ability to learn the language that they need to learn well. Lord, I pray for their kids, for Evie and Oliver and Lottie, that they would be able to adapt to this new culture quickly, that they would quickly find that as home, and that they would be able to embrace new friends and be a light and a witness as a family for you. God, help them and strengthen them. Bless them. And God, I pray that in these next few moments as we open your word together, that we might have a greater understanding of you and your love for us. Speak by your spirit. Speak by, your tru by the truth of your word. Help us, we pray, to understand how you would have us respond to your love for us. In Christ's name, amen, amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to Psalm 136, uh, that was the psalm that Mina and Allison read for us, and uh, we're going to get a chance to look at a part of that. And while you're turning there, I want us just to point our attention to the idea of this, of, of this topic of love that we're considering today. You see, poets, musicians, authors, and scriptwriters alike have all tried to capture in words the profound impact of love, whether it's the, whether it's the selfless, unconditional love that we see in Scripture or in a genuine relationship or even a romantic love, a love that is experienced between two people 
Love is the topic of countless songs and poems and movies and books and operas and so much more. And in much the same way, hymn writers have tried to express the vast nature, not just of love in general, but of God's love for us. For instance, the ancient hymn, Here is Love, talks about the breadth and overwhelming power of God's love. It says, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. And then there's another ancient hymn text that actually has its roots in nearly a thousand years of Jewish history. Imagine that, a a song that had been actively sung in praise and worship to God for over a thousand years. This song is the love of God, and the text suggests that the love of God is so profound that all the resources in the world could not contain the material even to express the richness and the expansiveness of God's love. The first verse says this. It says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then the final verse says, Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. But it's not only the ancient hymn writers that have tried to help us grasp the nature of God's love. John Mark McMillan, in, in, uh, he expressed the love of God in a bit more of a raw and tempestuous way when he said that God loves like a hurricane. And whether modern or ancient, our songs about the love of God are rooted in both, this, both Scripture and in the experiences of God's people. And Psalm 136 is a psalm that both references the experiences that we can read about him about God and seeks to embed God's actions in love. God does what he does because he loves us. Thinking about this psalm, Psalm uh, 136 is often categorized as a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm that we think is for corporate worship as it seems to consist of a call and response. I don't know if you could tell by by the words on the screen, there's a little bit of repetition in that psalm. And it remembers and reflects on God's steadfast love, his hesed, as it was realized throughout Israelite history. And roughly, if we were to outline the psalm, in fact, if you have your your copy of Scripture open, you might notice that there are some gaps. Verses 1 to 3 is a general thanks for God's love, his sovereignty, his goodness. Verses 4 to 9 give thanks and praise for God's work in creating the universe. God's 10 through 16 give thanks and praise to God for his work in the Exodus, getting pe- the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And then 17 to 22 continues that, giving thanks and praise for God's work in the conquest of the promised land, giving the land that he had promised to the people. The, fir- the verses that we're really going to focus on today are, are thanks and praise for God's remembrance and his rescue and the refreshing of his people. And finally, the last verse offers sort of a summary thanks for God's steadfast love. 
And so based on the repeated refrain that, that is in there, the steadfast love endures forever, we can conclude that it's because of God's hesed, his covenantal love. We talked about it briefly last week, but it is his love for his people that prompts him to act. Last week we saw love as, as part of who God is. It defines his character. That was the reason Jeremiah could hope even in the midst of his lament. That is the reason we can hope, both in the promised Messiah, Jesus, in the salvation that he offers us today, and in the promise that he will return, the promise of his second coming. So while God's covenantal love is what provided fuel for hope, today as we reflect on this second candle, the candle of love, we get to reflect a bit more on the impact of God's love. Look at verses 23 and 24, if you will. It says, It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I think if we could boil this down into one statement, that would be that in love, Yahweh remembers and rescues his people. And so if you want to follow along in your outline, if you want to fill in blanks, if that's a way that you like to do this, here's where the blanks begin. And that is, we get to see, first of all, that in love, God remembers. In love, God remembers. There are some people who have a view of God that basically says, God started everything. He sort of spinned the universe. And then he took his hands off and said, I'm done. I don't care what happens to you people. I don't care what happens to my creation. I'm done. I'm just going to let it go. And there are some people who have that view. And yet one of the things that we see in this psalm is that God remembers. In other words, God knows. God knows the plight of his people. God knows the plight of his creation. God understands what is happening, and he is aware and will act accordingly. But not only does God remember, but God remembers us. God remembers you and me. And as I was thinking about this, I I was struck by the idea of how often do we forget about God? How often do we, even as Christians who might come to church every week, but then maybe forget about God, we live as though we're practical atheists, forgetting to interact with him. How often do we live as though God doesn't exist? We may forget him, but he will never forget us, not because of who we are, but it's because of his love for us, for his people. The people of Israel had forgotten God in so many ways, and as a result, they had been disciplined at different times. And we've read about that and studied about that and talked about that throughout their history. And yet, as this psalm illustrates, God remembered the very people who forgot him, the very people who had forsaken him. They were slaves in a foreign land. And God remembered them. They were rebellious pilgrims on the way to the land he promised them, and God still remembered them. And of course, God's remembrance of his people is rooted in his covenantal steadfast love for, his, for them. And God, I want you to think about this because um, God had been in a conversation with Abraham and he'd been promising Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do all these wonderful things in your family. But Abraham, your people will be foreigners in a foreign land. They'll be strangers. 
This won't be on the screen, but Genesis 15, 13 to 16 says that the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so this psalm really helps us understand that God remembered his people. God remembers us. He remembered that they were now slaves in a foreign land. And just as God remembered the people of Israel, he also remembers us because his remembrance is rooted in that steadfast love. But God also remembers us in our humiliation. You see, he, he said here, he, uh, the, the, the song says in verse 23, he remembered us in our low estate. For the people of Israel, they initially found themselves in that low estate as slaves in Egypt. And God had redeemed them from that land. God had sent them through a sort of baptism in the Red Sea. And in much the same way, God remembers us in our humiliation. We may not be slaves to earthly masters, but we are slaves to sin. We are shackled by the bonds of our fallen humanity. And God the Son entered into our humiliation and took on flesh like ours. 1 John 4, 8 says, reminds us that God is love. It is part of his character. His, he is the definition and the standard of love. He is not dependent on our love in return. His love toward us is not dependent on our worthiness to be loved. So we've discussed briefly that in love, God remembers us in our humiliation. But not only does does God remember us in love? Verse 24 reminds us that in love, God rescues. In love, God rescues. God's loving remembrance of his people goes far beyond just thinking about them. It's, it's kind of nice to be able to know that someone is thinking about you. And, and Vern kind of mentioned that in his prayer, that idea that love is just that warm feeling, that warm fuzzy, that, that affection. And yet God's love prompted action. You see, he rescues us from our enemies. Israel's enslavement in Egypt prompted God to step in with great signs and wonders in order to bring them freedom. Verses 10 to 16 um, talk about this. In fact, we're gonna, as we read this, I want to ask you to read the second line. So you read the part in yellow, for his steadfast love endures forever. We'll do this little call and response like the Israelites might have done in their own worship. But beginning in verse 10, it says, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. 
Amen. And then the next several verses, 17 to 22, really talk about that time in the wilderness and the kings that God overthrew on behalf of the Israelites. And as Christians, I think it's important for us to remember that God will eventually rescue us from the evil that is in this world. When Jesus returns, he will usher in his full kingdom. He will cast the devil and his army into the lake of fire and will bring a full and swift judgment. And know that it is Jesus who will do that. Jesus will rescue Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon and that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And then after that, he must be released for a little while. So Satan's going to go in this place for a thousand years and come out briefly. And then in uh, Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Beloved, we have this great hope that one day God will fully vanquish his people. He will fully redeem us from all of the wickedness and all of the evil that is in the world. In love, he will rescue us from that enemy. But I think we also need to recognize that while that is in the future sometime, we must realize that in love, God has rescued us from ourselves. He rescued us from our sin. You see, the people of Israel have become complacent and comfortable with their lives in in Egypt as slaves, even as Moses was trying to tell them, hey, guys, come on, we're going to leave. And they're like, no, 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 that's too much tension. That's too much stress, too much conflict. For Well, just be quiet, Moses. We'll be fine. And God finally said, no, we are going to do this. You see, for the people of Israel in Egypt, God had sent someone who could relate to them because he was an Israelite. And yet... Moses also had royal connections. He, he understood Pharaoh. He understood what, what those people were like. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. But more than that, he was sent by God to advocate for the people and to lead them toward redemption and freedom from their slavery. And in much the same way, Jesus Christ, in being born like us, could relate to our slavery He was sent by God with a royal heritage and a divine nature. And then instead of simply leading us to redemption, he actually became our redemption. Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Gregory of Nyssa wrote, sin, our nature demanded to be healed, fallen to be raised up dead to rise again. We had lost the possession of good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state. 
Today we reflect on the steadfast love of God which prompted him to remember the covenant he made with his people. In his love, he rescues us from our enemies and from our sin for eternity. Friend, if you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, know that he came not simply to be an example for us. There are a lot of people who say, yeah, Jesus was a good man. He's a good teacher. Let's just follow his example. He did more than that. He came to free us from the bondage of our sin. He came to bring us into eternal life. So friend, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've not given your sins over to him, then let me encourage you to do that today. Put your hope and trust in him. Respond to the love that God has shown for you. Because God remembers you and has rescued you from your sin, if you would but respond. And beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice in the love of God. In your own Advent celebrations, revel in the love that he has for you. 1 John 4, 10 to 11 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me pray.